I don't know if you're aware, but oh, of course you're aware you are Canadians, and uh, so, you will, so you will be aware that this week marked the death of the tragically hips frontman, um, Mr. Gord Downey. And, uh, and what I saw, you know, as someone who's from a foreign country but has moved into this country, I saw a nation who were grieving. And, uh, and through, through, through kind of seeing his life and, and seeing, you know, I remember his, his last concert, which was last year in, in, in Kingston. And I remember that moment where he just kind of screamed, you know, on the stage and it was so moving. And, and I'm not sure what, I think he was saying no, or, or there was something, but, but just that, that pure emotion on God's face as he... As he um, lived that last moment in the public eye, and uh, now uh, we've lost him. And if there's anything which I've heard as a common theme as people reflect on Gord Downey, is that, is that people say he is a person who captured what it meant to be truly Canadian through his songs. He was very famous north of the border, but, but south of the border, people had hardly heard of him. And, um, and I remember when I first came to Canada in 2004 that the first tragically hip song I heard was, was Vaccination Scar. And it just, uh, maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't, but it blew me away. It was just such, a, such a, a, a powerful song. And as soon as I heard that song, I wanted to know more about the hip. And, uh, and so, when, so when God died, someone, someone tweeted this. Sorry, rest of the world, Canada's closed. We've had a death in the family. And so I don't know how, how, how God stood in relation to his creator, uh, but in moments like this, when, when, when a nation's grieving, um, our focus cannot be f- helped but be focused on the brevity of life, and it starts to cause us to consider eternal things. You know, when someone is, 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 is taken down seemingly in the prime of his life. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Philippians chapter 3, 17. And let me pray. Lord, I thank you uh, for that, that, that we are meeting here in your name. Lord, and I pray that as we're meeting in, in, here in your name, as we're uniting our hearts and our minds, Lord, that you would speak in a powerful way to us, Lord. And those of us who don't know you yet, who aren't yet saved, Lord God, who don't have, have the security of knowing that their eternal fate is safe and secure, Lord, I pray that uh, you, would, you would draw them, that uh, you would speak powerfully into their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, brothers and sisters... Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Okay. But 
Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to, to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and my sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Last week, Paul urged us to do one thing, to press on. And this one thing of pressing on, if you remember, is made up of forgetting what is past and straining to what lies ahead. And we looked at the Olympic ski jumper, Eddie Edwards, as a great example of this. He forgot his failures from the past and he strained ahead. And as a result, he won a place in the world's heart. And we, we also learned last week that often our sins and our guilt And our regrets prevent us from straining ahead and from pressing on. But Paul tells us to forget what is past. And the only way we can do that is to confess our sins to Jesus Christ, to repent or to turn around and to thank him for paying our debt. So last week it was all about pressing on. And this week we're going to focus on standing firm. Because as we walk in Jesus, it's not always about striding ahead in victory and in power we, we know this. Sometimes it's more about just not losing ground. Sometimes it's more about standing firm, about hanging on, just like soldiers in the Great War had to learn to live in trenches, had to learn to live in foxholes, had to really dig in, that they had to establish a line where the enemy was not going to cross. Sometimes that is what our Christian walk looks like, is getting into the trenches. And so in verse 17, Paul writes this. Brothers and sisters, brothers, join in imitating me. And a couple of uh, sentences later in chapter 4, verse 9, Paul expands on this idea. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Then if you turn to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says this, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, I'm probably not one of those people who would come out and say, look, follow me, and you can't go too far wrong. If you want to follow Jesus, then look at me. And it's not because I'm humble, it's because I'm really afraid. I'm, because I'm afraid that my sin would be exposed that's right there under the surface, and that you would see me as the hypocrite that I probably am. But Paul leaps in there and he says, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. He's the Zumba instructor standing at the front of the room in his spandex saying, let's salsa. He's saying, do what I do. And here's where I want to encourage you right off the bat, is that way too many Christians are preventing themselves from influencing others because they know that they are sinners. But here's the thing, is that the Paul who said, join in imitating me, said also this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. So how can Paul say, I'm the worst of sinners, and say, join in imitating me? Well, think about it. If you're running, if you're working towards your first 
five-kilometer run or your first two-kilometer run. That's a little uh, shout out there. (laughs) Who are you going to be more inspired to follow? An elite ultramarathon runner or a mate who started running a few weeks earlier than you did? Who's going to keep you motivated throughout the hard work of running without making you feel like a total failure? Of course, it's the mate who's just a little bit ahead of you and who can come alongside you and say, yeah, I remember feeling like I was going to die after my first time running, but don't worry, because you probably won't. So it's the very fact that Paul is an ordinary bloke who considers himself the worst of sinners that earns our respect. He's the guy that said last week in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Paul is the guy that you want to imitate. So who are you surrounding yourself with? Who are you spending time with? Who are you letting speak into your life? Because Whatever you're listening to, that's what you start singing. For example, how many times have I been minding my own business when all of a sudden I start singing something like, Styling, wilding, living up in this city. Got chucks on with Saint Laurent. Got to kiss myself, so pretty. (laughs) And what's the reason why I start singing Uptown Funk? It's because it's catchy and because I've been listening to it. And the girls enjoy it. And in the same way, you start singing whatever you're listening to. It's just human nature. So I encourage you to be listening to stuff which is good. Surround yourself with like-minded people. If you're going to run a five-kilometer run, you don't want to be doing it with marathon runners, but neither do you want to be doing it with unmotivated couch potatoes who are more interested in what's happening on Netflix that night. So, spend time with people who can help you grow. Who are you giving the right to to invest in your life? Are you part of a grow group? Are you joining with others and really digging into God's word? And if you're a person who's a Christian or or who has been a Christian for many years, but has maybe disqualified yourself from speaking into others' lives because of your own sin and shortcoming, start letting your voice be heard. Start sharing your wisdom. Start encouraging others with your honesty and your story. Really come alongside a Christian who's younger and say to them, brother, sister, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have with us. You you should be like Paul who says that the mature person in verse 15 knows that they're not perfect in verse 12. Press on. And why do we do this? Why do we have to do this? Because if we don't, then we'll for sure start listening to those whom Paul warns us about in verse 18. It says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now here we're not sure exactly who he's referring to. He could be talking about the Judaizers, 
You know, the folks that said that if you want to follow Jesus, then you have to do all the Jewish stuff as well. You know, you have to be circumcised, you have to follow the, the uh, law. But, but we don't know if this is who Paul is referring to here. But whoever they are, Paul is clear that he identifies them as enemies of the cross. They are in... They are... They are warring, warring against all that Christ accomplished on the cross. If they had their way, then the freedom that Jesus won for us on the cross would be exchanged for enslavement. So let's return to that race analogy. So if you imagine that you're running in this race and you're running solo and all of a sudden you hear a bunch of people on the sidelines shouting, you're rubbish, you're never going to do it, You're, you're not a real runner. And if they keep on going with this negative shouting kilometer after kilometer, and then they're throwing garbage at you and trying to trip you up, how long are you going to keep on going? And unfortunately, I think that many of us, if we think back to our childhood and uh, you know, our, our history, that many of us have had influential people speaking negativity into our lives, and words have a powerful effect. And a balloon cannot last forever when it's being dragged through a field of cacti. And so Paul is encouraging you to make a decision. Who are you going to surround yourself with? He sets this up kind of like an either-or scenario. You either imitate him and others like him, or you fall under the spell of the enemies of the cross. There is no neutral third option here. And what are the markers of the enemies of the cross? We, we, we have to know this so that we can avoid them. It says this, that their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. They're focused on earthly things. So for the enemies of the cross, you can identify an enemy of the cross because life is all about the here and now. They don't worship God. They worship their, their appetites. They, their, their glory is not in the cross. Their glory is in their shame. They aren't focused on heavenly things, eternal things. Instead, they're focused on earthly things. There was this guy that lived ages ago called John Chrysostom. And he was the Archbishop of Constantinople in the 4th century. So we're talking really old school. And this is what John Chrysostom said about the enemies of the cross. He said, and this is a quote from him, let us build houses, where? On earth. Let us procure fields, on earth again. Let us get power, on earth again. Let us get glory, on earth again. Let us be rich, always on earth. These these are the ones whose God is their belly, end quote. So what John Chrysostom is saying is saying that it's a focus on earthly things that identify someone whose God is their belly. What is a God? Well, it's something we worship. It's something that we put above all other things, above all other considerations. And the thing with a God is that they generally demand worship. And how silly is it to worship such a temporary God as your digestive system? In goes food. It gets processed. And a few hours later, out it comes. And I think that Paul here is trying to show us how absurd it is to give 
anything that's temporary, ultimate meaning in your life. Any appetite, any desire, whether it's a sinful thing or a non-sinful thing, as soon as you, you give it the power of ultimate meaning in your life, you make it your ultimate purpose. And as soon as you make it your ultimate purpose, you make it your God. And as soon as it becomes your God, it becomes sin to you. We read in the book of Isaiah that he puts it like this, that they are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. And so what the prophet Isaiah is saying here is that if you're putting your eternal hope in something temporary, then you are utterly put to shame. And in our passage here today, Paul uses the same word, shame, as he says in verse 19, that God is their belly and they glory in their shame. And how often do we see it? Here today in this world where human appetite is supreme. That the only sin is not to follow your heart. That the only vice is not to be true to who you are. Other than that, everything else is okay. We live in a world where we've kind of supplanted God as I am with me as I am. And me saying I am is the most important thing I can say about myself. We repeat the gospel according to Lady Gaga, and we repeat back to her her creed, which says this, I'm beautiful in my way, because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Oh, there ain't no other way. Baby, I was born this way. No matter gay, straight or bi, lesbian, transgendered life, I'm on the right track, baby. I was born to survive. But what if God wants you to more than survive? What if he wants you to become whole? We live in a world where how I choose to, uh, to, uh, to identify or express myself is my supreme right, as though we were our own creator. But true joy is not found in this root. As I've said many, in this, many times in this series, that the only way to quit our flip-flopping is to find our joy in Jesus. Joy is found in obedience. So let me introduce you to someone who discovered this for herself, who chose obedience and wholeness. I recently read Rachel Gilson's story in the magazine Christianity today, and it floored me. Because it grabbed me, first of all, with the heading which said this, I never became straight. Perhaps that was never God's goal. And if you were anything like me, that made you go, okay. In her story, Rachel explains how she had her first romantic feelings towards another girl when she was 15. Later at Yale, in her philosophy class, she says that she began compulsively wondering whether God could exist. And she says, back in my room, I started Googling religious terms like a middle schooler searching for pornography, which is a wonderful sentence. I couldn't tell you what my search terms were, but in that wave of web pages, I began to encounter Jesus for the first time. Again and again, I saw how Jesus notified 
and dignified and served people that I would have thrown aside, she writes. But I was troubled by a suspicion that my life was against his. And so then Rachel met, met, met some girls who were, who were in a serious relationship, and one was in training to become a Lutheran minister. And they explained to her that, that any understanding that Jesus was against their relationship was because of historic misinterpretations of Scripture. But as Rachel looked up the verses that they referenced, they saw that, that or she saw that what they were saying didn't line up with the, with the plain interpretation of Scripture, the plain meaning of the Bible. So a few days later, Rachel was in the room of a friend of hers, um, a lapsed Roman Catholic, and she saw an orange book spine on the shelf. And the book was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. So she was intrigued. So, of course, she quietly slipped that book into her bag, never told her friend, and went on her way. Rachel says this, I read and I read. One day, as I read in between classes in the library, I set it down mid-chapter as it dawned on me that there was a God. My head and my heart could no longer deny it. Yet, she writes, along with this, these glorious certainties came a panicked admission of my own wickedness. I had lied and cheated. I was cruel. I'd even stolen that book from a sweet, unsuspecting friend. How would I face a pure and holy God? But when I think, when I considered what Jesus had done, how he had endured separation from God so that I could be joined, I knew that I would be a fool to reject his offer. As my heart swelled with thankfulness, I clenched my eyes and prayed, surrendering myself, surrendering myself to Jesus. Rachel then encountered some friends who were Christians at Yale, and they took her under their wing. They were teaching her, and they were discipling her in the faith. But then Rachel encountered a roadblock. She writes, Choosing Jesus didn't answer all my questions. In particular, how would I deal with my natural and shakable attraction for women? I knew that the Bible was clear, that what I wanted was off-limits, but I didn't understand why. How could love, intimacy, and companionship be not allowed by this loving, intimate, companion-seeking God? Thus, thus, and this is why this article spoke to me in such a powerful way. Thus, I had to learn my first lesson of the Christian life, how to obey before I understood. My whole life had taught me to master a concept before I could assent to it. How could I possibly agree to something so costly without grasping the reason? And at this point, I want to pause for a moment because I'm not sharing this story with you because it's, it's, it's about homosexuality. All sins separate us from, from God. But I'm telling you this story because this line from Rachel really gripped me. I had to learn my first lesson of the Christian life, how to obey before I understood. How to obey before I understood. And Rachel writes, in the end, it came down to trust. I knew Jesus was worthy of trust because he had made a greater sacrifice. He had left the bliss, the comfort, the joy of loving and being perfectly loved to live a sorrowful life here on earth. He took the pain and shame of a criminal's death and suffered the father's rejection, all so I could be welcomed. Who could be more deserving of trust? But then Rachel asked the million-dollar question, 
would he remove my attraction to women? Those first years, she writes, of Christian faith included relationships with women that were spiritual, freeing, and intimate, yet non-erotic. But in other cases, personal and sexual chemistry lured me back into old patterns. Why wouldn't God just fix me? And slowly I came to understand that making me straight wasn't the answer. There is no biblical command, she writes, for us to be heterosexual. Through study, conversations, and prayer, I eventually arrived at a crucial truth, that sex wasn't something that God discovered, then fenced in with arbitrary restrictions, but it was something that he made to teach and to bless us when his teachings went against my instincts My denying of my desires became a profound way of saying, I trust you. And then she she and then she carries on that the 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 church or the community that God calls us us to be, one of intimacy, affection, truth, and grace, is his tool for keeping us, for shaping us, and preparing us for being in his presence forever. Whether we're called to marriage or singleness, every story of transformation in Christ is meant to happen in this community. Rachel then met a man on a missions trip who became romantically interested in her, which filled her with fear. And when he brought her flowers, she said, I've slept with more women than you ever will. Rachel writes this, I wrestled. I wasn't sexually attracted to him, but I did admire that he was good, that he was warm, that we shared our priorities. Was it wrong to keep seeing him when it didn't feel like previous love affairs? Was our relationship a pious sham? Yet I saw that he loved me, that he would be a good husband and father, that he would call me towards Jesus. I even felt that we could experience genuine physical love, albeit more learnt than natural Step by step, Rachel writes, Jesus opened my eyes to a kind of human love I hadn't seen, one steeped in commitment and spiritual joy rather than passion for passion's sake. Once again, I obeyed before I understood. I married that young man before I really fell in love with him because I loved Jesus first. Rachel then clarifies something important. This is typically the juncture where people jump to conclusions. I've had gay and lesbian people question whether I was really attracted to women. And I've had straight Christians proudly say that God healed my homosexuality, that they've used me as a mascot for something that I don't actually represent. The truth is, even 10 years into my marriage, that when I experience attraction to someone other than my spouse, that person is female still. My marriage has been a place of joy and healing. When people ask me my orientation, my most honest answer is married, with the same blessings and burdens of other married believers and with the same source of hope and power, the Holy Spirit. And then Rachel finishes her story with these words. That's why this is not the story of my becoming straight, which has never really happened and which is is beside the point. It's the story of my becoming whole, which is happening every day. That was Rachel's story. And it was a long story, but it's important that we hear it because life is messy and God comes into our mess bringing wholeness and holiness. 
And the reality is, is that we could, re- we could replace homosexuality with any human craving, with any, any desire, with any, any proclivity. That Rachel could have been someone who uh, wrestled with anger or heterosexual unfaithfulness or envy or gluttony or gossip or pride. The sin doesn't really matter. You know, the question is, are you going to allow Jesus to make you whole? Are you going to choose him over everything else and allow him to do in you what he needs to? Not just one moment, but for the rest of your life. Rachel was never fixed, as she put it, but she found wholeness in Jesus. She learned to obey without understanding And there are too many of us who say to God, I will obey you when it makes sense. But Rachel took the harder route and the more honest route of obeying before understanding. And we can all appreciate this on an instinctual level because you hope that your your toddler doesn't have to understand the inner workings of the transmission of thermal energy from an external source to the epidermis of the hand before obeying your command not to touch a hot stove. So... Obedience before understanding. And here, the stakes are so much higher than a hand burn. When the stakes are intimacy with God versus eternal separation from him, how much more important is it that we don't wait until we have full understanding before deciding to obey? You see, Paul is clear. He says that for those whose God is their belly whose glory is in their shame, who have their minds set on earthly things, they only have one end. Their end is what? Yep. Their end is destruction. So whatever temporary thing they've elevated up to this level of God, Paul says it won't carry them through just as a paper airplane cannot transport you from Ottawa to London Heathrow so worldly Appetites cannot get you, get you through coming face to face with a holy God and on to the other side. The only thing that can is, is, is Jesus. Which is why Paul then sets up as a contrast this next verse. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And I want you to think about a staircase. It's not a single staircase. There are, there, there are two staircases. It's a double staircase. And like all staircases, they lead somewhere. And I want you to imagine that these two staircases represent two different types of people. The one on the left, which is represented by the red arrows, represents, as verse 18 calls, the enemies of the cross. Whereas the one on the right, which is represented by green arrows, represents what chapter 4, verse 1 calls those who stand firm in the Lord. So, track with me through this verse, starting at verse 19. So we start at the bottom of the left-hand staircase with the phrase, with minds set on earthly things. We then move up the staircase, up to the next phrase, and it says, and they glory in their shame still further. Their God is their belly. Up to the top of the staircase, their end is destruction. 
Now let's focus our attention on the, on the other staircase that represents those who stand firm in the Lord. We, we start off at the bottom of the staircase with this phrase, Jesus will make them like him. He will transform them. And then we compare this with, with the bottom of the other staircase, which says that they have their mind set on earthly things. And this is about your direction. Where are you headed Do you have your mind fixed on earthly temporary things like the enemies of the cross? Or are you obsessed and fixed on being made like Jesus? The temporary or the the eternal. What is your direction? Where are you headed? And then we move up the staircase. uh, On the right-hand side, green, with this next phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we compare it with its contrast, with its opposite, glorying in shame, that they glory in their shame. And for the enemy of the cross... That thing that God has declared as shameful and sinful has been twisted into a source of pride. So this is about your desire. Are you glorying in your shame or or is your desire for Jesus? Are you an enemy of the cross or a believer who is standing firm? Let's keep moving up the staircase to the next phrase. It says, we await a savior. And let's compare this with the opposite side that says what? That God is their belly, that God is their stomach. This is about your decision. God gives you the freedom to choose either to gorge yourself with the temporary and sinful appetites of the world or to choose to wait for his return. Are you awaiting a savior or is the God or is your God your stomach? Finally, up to the top of the staircase with the last phrase, our citizenship is in heaven and compare this with the opposite side that says their end is destruction. This is about your destiny. Where are you going to end up? Where are you headed? Is your identity as a citizen of heaven? If not, according to the Bible, then you're heading for destruction along with the other enemies of the cross. So, let me ask you this. What is your direction? What is your heart's desire? What are the decisions which you have made or which you have to make? Because your answers to these three questions determine where you're going to end up. So are you someone like Paul who can say, my citizenship is in heaven and from it I await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform me, who will transform my lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself If this is the case, then praise God. If not, then the same Jesus who who broke into Paul's life and turned him from being an enemy of the cross to being someone who stood firm in the Lord is the same Jesus who longs to do the same for you today. He wants to take that, that, that same power that rules over the entire universe and he wants to use it to make you brand new in him. He wants to turn you from being an enemy to a friend, a son, a daughter, a loved one. And like we can see in verse 18, which isn't on the slide there, but um, yeah, in, in verse 18, is that God weeps over those who are the enemies of the cross. He's, he, he isn't gleefully waiting until the moment when he can finally consign you to hell. No, just like verse 18 says, that the fact that you are his enemy fills him with grief. He longs for you to turn and accept his hand of friendship. 
This God loves you so much that he considered a, a relationship with you worth the death of his own child so that he could make you his own child. This is the God who says to us through Paul in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my, my brothers, whom I, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Oh, I wonder, when you hear this, can you hear the Father heart of God squeezing out the side of Paul's words? This is the God who so captured Rachel Gilson with his love that she was willing to obey in faith. This is the God who calls us to, to, to imitate Rachel and to imitate Paul, who calls us to live lives of humble example as a community. This week in our grow groups, we're going to be wrestling with questions like this. How should the promise of Jesus' return affect the way that you live your life? In what ways is Cornerstone a, a, a mini colony of the kingdom of heaven? Why should we imitate Paul when he considers himself the worst of sinners? And why did Paul think of the enemies of the cross with tears? Why not with anger or with hatred? On October the 17th, Gord Downey passed from this world. And I don't know where he stood in relationship with God, but God was someone who understood the value of a life. Listen to these words. First thing, we'd climb a tree and maybe then we'd talk or sit silently and listen to our thoughts with illusions of someday casting a golden light. No dress rehearsal. This is our life. And, and let me leave you with these words that God spoke to his people in the Old Testament. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast unto him, for he is your life and, and, strength, and, and length of days. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that uh, you would draw us nearer to you, Lord, that uh, we would not hold, hold ourselves back, that we would not linger in the shadows, that uh, we would not be content with, with thus far and no, no further. Lord, but, but I pray like we heard last week that we would really press in, Lord, that we would press on, that we would strain on, that we would leave what is past and that uh, we, would, we, we would strain ahead. Lord, I pray that we would be those who really stand firm in the Lord, Lord, that, that, that we would hold on to what we know and that, um, that we would not lose, lose any ground. Lord, I pray for those of us here today who don't know you yet that, that, that these, uh, that these uh, words of grace and these cords of love would really draw us in, Lord, and that we would trust you and that we would obey you, Lord God, even before we understand, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.